Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa So this this will be the first uh, Dhamma talk I've given for uh, a year or so. So, uh, (laughs) Forgive me if I'm a little rusty. I'm sure you're all extremely uh, accommodating and uh, uh, generous in your uh, criticism by now. This, uh, we've been together for three days, and uh, <clears throat> you're probably thinking that's enough purgatory. <laughs> Time for some resurrection. But, uh, you know, nothing is ever guaranteed in uh, but we uh, we've lived together and uh, been spending our time in each other's company and um, Using this time to uh, to reflect and explore, consider what is this uh, this experience of living? What is this this body, this mind, this world? You know, how does it work? And uh, what is what are the things that bring clarity, peace? What are the things that bring confusion? greater discord and, uh, and dukkha. Because the, the only way we really learn is by exploring and discovering for ourselves. And so <clears throat> gathering together for these, uh, this kind of um, this task is uh, something very precious and beautiful in, in life. And uh, personally, I feel extremely grateful for the opportunity also having uh, Longpo Ajahn Sumato here, uh, one of these rare visits to uh, the wild lands of the far west. Uh, so this is uh, a rare and good opportunity for us to to take a deep, close look at the way life is. Uh, during during the last year, uh, as probably many people are, are aware, I was uh, able to uh, enjoy a sabbatical. Uh, most of that time, I was in India, also somewhat in Bhutan and Nepal for a few weeks. Um, and 
even though many of you might have a sort of idealized view of the Buddhist monastic life, this sort of life of kind of utter liberality and freedom, where <laughs> you do spontaneously in the moment. Uh, my, uh, my calendar is infamous. People, uh, when I, 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 un- I unfold my, my year-long calendar, it's sort of a well-known uh, source of amusement that, you know, the 365 little squares are all neatly accounted for, <laughs> one way or another. And, uh, yeah, our lives can fill with many structures and obligations, uh, events that have our, our names written upon them. Yeah, many of these are, are joyfully carried out and engaged in, but also there's rather a lot. <laughs> so uh, it was a, I was very grateful for the opportunity to take a, a year away from uh, such responsibilities and, and teaching duties. Um, I had a, a three-month period in Thailand at the end of my 10th reigns, which was 15 years ago. And... Uh, that was the last, <laughs> the last holiday I had. So I was uh, very glad to be able to have this time. I'd never visited the Buddhist holy places before. And uh, also just having a period uh, away from the, the structures and obligations of a monastic routine, still uh, guided and... Um, Supported by the monastic discipline, but without the uh, the calendar of uh, of events and um, things that I had to do or to be present for. So um, the the uh, the word whim had long <laughs> since left my my vocabulary <laughs> to do things. I think the last thing I tried to do last time I tried to do something on a whim um, was about six years ago, and it didn't go down very well. <laughs> I spent an extra night away somewhere off in the mountains. So I thought it'd be nice. I was invited for a picnic the next day. So I thought, okay, not much going on at the monastery. I'll just stay here. So, so I didn't try that again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to be able to live on, a, on uh, guided by whims for a, a year or so, just to be able to go someplace or, or, or not go, to stay or to, to move, as the, the spirit chose, uh, was a, a great treat. But also along with a, a sense of um, being able to visit the Buddhist holy places and being able to not be governed by a, a fixed calendar, um, there were some other elements of, that, uh, of the time that uh, I felt was also very important. And, and this also relates to many of the themes that, that Lumpur has been talking about during these last few days, um, that uh, we, um, we've been looking at the, the mind, at the body, and the, the way that, that uh, nature works, and these, these uh, structures get created and solidified, how very much um, and completely a, a, a me is born from sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, memory, perception. We create an I and a you, you know, a me in here and a world out there, and the one moving around in the other. And um, much of Buddhist meditation practice is, is pointed towards understanding what this, this self-creation 
is, how that works, and how it can be uh, uh, not pursued in the same way, how recognizing that the, the, the feeling of self is a, a psychological structure that arises and ceases. It's just another attribute of nature. It's not an absolute reality, even though it might proclaim itself to be that you know, very fervently. <laughs> if anything is real in the universe, I am. <laughs> not me personally, but you. <laughs> you are. It's that feeling that uh, I am is a solid, fixed entity. Uh, and so that uh, one of the the, uh, the the things I also undertook during this year was to stay uh, out of communication with anybody that I knew. So um, uh, not even Ajahn Pasno, the co-abbot at Abhayagiri, knew where I was. There was a, a, a way I could be contacted in, in case of emergencies, but... Uh, I had no fixed address, no um, no means of contact, and no schedule. So that uh, you know, literally, no, you know, nobody knew where I was except for me and the one or two people I was traveling with, and of course, half of India who was <laughs> seeking to get my attention. You know, where in whatever town or village where I was living, but. Uh, in terms of connected to the, the people that I knew or the, sort of the characters of my, my uh, usual plot, you know, all of my dear friends gathered here <laughs> and many others, you know, no, none of you knew where I was and, uh, or, and I was not reachable. Similarly, um, I, uh, I wanted to go to all the Buddhist holy places, but I also knew that loads of people that are uh, my friends and I knew also like to go to such places. So I thought, well, how can I overcome this? <laughs> I know, I'll go at times that other people don't go. <laughs> so I went uh, to places like uh, Bodhgaya and Saranath, uh, Kus- uh, Kusinara, you know, during the hot season. <laughs> and nobody in their right mind is in Bihar in the hot season. <laughs> I thought, no one in their right mind is in Bihar in the hot season. That's what everyone says. Okay, so I'll go to Bihar in the hot season. Plenty of mangoes. <laughs> That's the, uh, the consolation. But uh, also just, um, it was a, a way to be in those places and uh, to not be uh, mingling with, with uh, so many um, people that I might might know. Now, you might think this is a bit sort of paranoid or obsessive, but the whole principle is rather like creating a retreat and having noble silence and, and a routine of meditation. I mean, if you look objectively at what we've been doing for the last three days, you know, a hundred people not talking to each other, you're all living in close proximity and either writing notes to each other or you know, whispering covertly and quietly, or gathering together to sit down, to get up, move outside, walk up and down. (laughs) The casual observer might wonder. (laughs) Like like Ajahn Ajahn Chah when he visited IMS uh, in 1979, watching everybody um, doing walking meditation in slow motion. (laughs) He he was uh, famous for going up to people and saying, I hope you get better soon.
so uh, the the effort that I, I was making in the, in the way I set up the, the time of pilgrimage was to sort of minimize the self-creating signals because um, uh, we create ourselves through um, our contact with the world a lot, a lot of the time when we interact with others. Then just like... Uh, 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 Don Paul was saying how um, you know, he, you think he's Ajahn Sumedha all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, similarly, you know, you know, you think that I'm Ajahn Amaro all the time, and uh, so when, but whenever you're in, in in interacting with others, then the persona is put on. You know, persona literally means a mask. Per is means through, and sona is the sound. It's the thing that the sound is passes through. So that's the mask that we put on. So we become uh, the the person when we when we interact with others. Whether you're being the mother or the child or the you know, the husband or the the, uh, the the boss or the worker or the the teacher or the staff or these are all dozens of different personae that we uh, we acquire, and that in itself is not a problem. It's when we actually believe that those are real, then it becomes difficult. We we become burdened. We are born into those different uh, characters. We become those different personae. So just to have a year of, uh, of having a break from having to be Ajahn Amaro, not having to uh, um, be uh, in a role of leadership. You know, I was very, I made it very clear with the people I was traveling with, this is a democratic outfit. <laughs> just myself and mostly one other layman. Um, the two of them kind of shared time with me over the year. But it was a, a shared democratic outfit. I was not their teacher <laughs> or their, their leader. This was a, a group decisions were made about things. Um, also, I avoided staying in any Theravadan monastic institutes. So I wouldn't, because I know what it's like when you're in a monastery and you have some senior monastic come to visit. Oh, great. <laughs> they can give a talk tonight. Sure, <laughs> I've got these people who'd love to meet this person. So, so being blessed with with some seniority of twenty six reigns as a as a monk, twenty six years, then uh, um, you are, you immediately fall into that role of being a, a senior person or having to be sort of put up in the hierarchy or expected to teach or to participate in this, that, or the other. So uh, to avoid being put into that role or having to acquire, put on that persona, I thought uh, I would just stay other places in uh, northern Buddhist tradition places or guest houses or just, you know, wherever. So I spent the rains in a Korean temple in Shravasti, uh, which is one of the least visited Buddhist holy places. And also I was, there was one other Indian novice there, a young novice, but I was the only monk. So that um, I was very blessed in being able to, to, to live in that, that way of just being able to be another dust-gathering body in, in India. Not having to be Ajahn Amaro. I didn't give a single Dhamma talk, uh, except when the, the, the abbot of the Korean temple returned and said, oh, great, senior monk staying in my monastery, <laughs> quick, <laughs> wanted me to give daily Dhamma talks to, the, to the, uh, all the monastery helpers. 
Um, but I, uh, I was very grateful that, uh, that to be able to live uh, away from that kind of uh, need. Not that I, I find it that burdensome uh, living and performing these kind of roles. But it's just helpful to have a contrast, isn't it? To be able to step out of the familiar and to just uh, assume a different mode, like living in a different culture. Also, I made no effort to learn Hindi whatsoever. Because I, I kind of had, before I went out, I dutifully copied out the entire Devanagari alphabet, but it just sat there in the front of my notebook and never got looked at. Because <laughs> I also found, well, if I can't talk to anyone, they ask me these interesting questions. I, I can just smile benignly and, <laughs> and emanate loving kindness and have no clue as to what they're, they're saying. And therefore, no need to engage and to, to be... Uh, hooked up in that way. So that these are different, uh, uh, and I was very consciously using these as different supports as to, to help gain perspective on that, on, on you know, many of these elements of, of life because the monastic role and being uh, uh, a monk, uh, being a, uh, in a teaching role, these, these gather strength. And so to be able to just step out of that and for them to have no value and no meaning for a whole year, and just to be another body moving around India, getting hot, getting cold, needing to, to, uh, to eat and to relieve itself. Uh, that was a, a wonderful treat. And uh, it provided many of the uh, an ongoing opportunity to to see how that uh, you know, self-creating process works. You know, and, then, and also to explore that question, well, who am I if I'm not a person, if I'm not the, the, the character that is normally around? And, and the kind of meditation practice that, that uh, Lung Po has been guiding us towards during these days, it keeps aiming at that question, doesn't it? You know, who am I if I'm not the body? Who am I if I'm not these thoughts, if I'm not this personality? You know, if the personality is not self, the body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, then even consciousness is not self. What's left? <laughs> Who am I without, without all these structures, without these forms? And so we, we use a retreat situation, noble silence and the restraint of the routine and the formal practice to keep raising that kind of question to support that investigation. Because this is, uh, you know, I would say, the, the key element of the human potential. If that, uh, uh, exploring that mystery and then using the, the Buddha Dhamma to help reveal the, the truth of the matter, this is the, 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 the most essential, the very best that can be done with a human life. To, to find out what we are, who we are. That is, uh, it might seem you know, uh, extraordinarily mundane, or, or like, well, I know who I am. You know? <laughs> we, we have our name, and think, well, you know, this is my name, this is who I am. This is my social security number. I know who I am. You know, I registered, I filled out the form. But, of course, it doesn't take too long to 
Think, well, what is it that that name refers to? What is that? What is, and what is the mind? What is this? Now we use the the um, the training in meditation and the development of of pure awareness, this quality of of knowing, to explore experience in an, in a, in a uh, direct way, to look at those assumptions um, about who and what we are. You know, I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm old. I'm young. I'm American. I'm Canadian, I'm English, yeah. I am not a Buddhist, <laughs> I'm not an anything, I am a Buddhist, uh, I'm a sick person, I'm, uh, I'm a failure, I'm an important person. <laughs> what are all the I am's that, 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 uh, that crop up, the ones that we see as being hollow and, and void, and the ones that sneak in the back door and never even get questioned. That is to, to bring all of those personae into focus and to, to look, to examine, well, what, what is that? Are these really so real? What, what is solid here? And the more that the quality of, of pure awareness is established, uh, the more clearly all of those different uh, identities can be can be seen through, and this is not just like taking a philosophical position or like a nice. We like the idea of not being anything, but the point of it is a direct realization, a direct knowing that oh, this is not self. This this body really is not what what I am. This personality does not have an owner. Even the feeling of I am is not self. The feeling of I am is a feeling that arises and ceases. It doesn't have an owner. It's an, an aspect of nature. So one of the, the ways in which we can um, explore this or, or work with it in, in the meditation um, is through contemplative thought or inquiry. Uh, oftentimes thinking gets gets labeled as a, a kind of villain or a sort of mental disease, sort of a nasty little infection, <laughs> little kind of fungal growth. <laughs> Incidentally, I was, uh, people, many people have been asking about my time in India, and I was remarkably healthy. I was very blessed uh, to be um, scarcely a day's illness during the whole year. But during the rains, the monsoon last year, I, I think I had it was either four or five separate skin ailments all at the same time. Different kinds of interesting fungal <laughs> accumulations. <laughs> sort of rather nasty, uh, pungent, strange little things here and there. Yeah. I won't go into any details, but it was... It was, uh, it was kind of intriguing to see what was going to crop up where next. <laughs> and we can relate to the thinking in the same way, like nasty little pungent fungus. 
fungal growths and infestations that grow between our ears. And that you know, thought is a sort of horrible and nasty thing that should be banished and that you know, the mind of a good meditator doesn't have any thinking in it. And that if there's a thought, it's a, it, it should be banished. But uh, I, as I was saying to some, uh, some people earlier today, it was a real revelation to me um, very, years ago, very early on, when I found out that in Buddhist psychology, thought is just another sense object. Like the eye perceives light, the ears perceive sound, the nose perceives you know, odors and so forth. And the, uh, the, the mind or the, the, the brain, if you like, is the organ that perceives thought, mental activity. And that uh, when, you, when you list the senses in, in Buddhist psychology, it's you know, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. That, that's just very matter of fact. That's the sixth sense, is, uh, is just the, the, uh, the mind that perceives thought. And so in that way, just as we can be completely mindful and, and uh, at peace with visual objects that are, are beautiful or ugly or neutral or, or, or sounds that are beautiful, ugly or neutral, and we don't um, look upon them as intrin- intrinsically polluting or obstructing the mind or, or mental balance or, or peacefulness. So why should the presence of a thought intrinsically clog up the mind? Why should that be something that's you know, bad or wrong. Uh, in the same way that uh, you know, a cloud in the sky, we're not going to say that you know, every cloud is is uh, the only skies are clear. Good skies are clear skies. That you know, every cloud should be banished. So no, it's just sometimes there's clouds, sometimes there's, there's uh, clear skies. That's the way nature is. And similarly, we can we can regard thought as simply as a as a a mental object, as a perception. Nothing to, to fight against or be confused by. Now obviously the, the content of thought, and particularly verbal thought, you know, we is uh, loaded because we, we get drawn into the stories that, that uh, thoughts tell and the um, the ideas that get uh, proclaimed and the solidity that thoughts seem to have so that we imbue them with, with meaning and with potency uh, in an unconscious way. But once we begin to establish a bit of stability and clarity with, with the meditation, then uh, we find that we can use thought as a, a helpful and supportive tool uh, to... Uh, support and sustain that clarity of mind. So uh, as the, the Buddha used the analogy, he said it's like using a thorn to dig out another thorn. Like if you've trodden on a thorn, you've know, got it in your foot, then you, you can dig out that thorn using the point of, a, of another thorn. So we can, uh, in a way, explore the, the domains of identification by using uh, investi- uh, investigative thought, yoniso manasikara, or Dhamma Vijaya is also another term that gets used for this, which is one of the, the factors of enlightenment, investigation of Dhamma. Yoni So Manasikara literally means um, investigation of the, the root or the source. So in the meditation, um, 
uh, many people to, in today uh, in the in the um, discussions we were having, we were asking about uh, identification with with consciousness and the the um, sort of the experience or the role of the the observer in in meditation. Because sometimes when the when the mind gets was calm and still. Um, there, there can be a, a solid sense of, of knowing, but embedded in that, there's a, 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 a covert me that is, is the knower. There's me, there's a, a, a quiet feeling of me, the experiencer, me, the meditator. There is a person here who is doing the practice or is, is meditating, is the owner of this experience. And the more that the attention is focused on the object and is absorbed on the object, then the more that that, that owner can carry on and, and <laughs> be in charge, uh, unbeknownst, you know, unobserved and, and unacknowledged. But the more uh, there is a, an owner of experience, the more that there is that quality of me and, and mine, then the, the, in a way the greater the, the degree of, of ignorance and the a kind of dissociation of the, the, the heart from, from Dhamma itself. We can easily find a, a deadness in the meditation. Uh, I've often told a story of some years ago, many years ago, I was living in a monastery in the north of England. It was a very snowy winter and uh, extremely quiet place. There's only five or six of us living there and very few visitors Snow was three or four feet deep outside, and so it was very, very still, very, very uh, quiet situation for formal meditation practice. And I'd been uh, a monk for about five or six years by then, and uh, having started out with, with a sort of rabidly active mind, um, very busy and keen thinking mind, it was. It had been managing to slow it down somewhat over some uh, time with a lot of effort. And then finally, during this retreat, after two or three weeks, the thinking mind went completely quiet. It finally shut up. <laughs> and uh, maybe some of you have had that, that, ex- that experience where when it finally goes quiet, like when the, you know, the, when the, the, the refrigerator switches off and the power goes out, Oh, it stopped. <sighs> and there's this blissful feeling of uh, you know, pleasant relief when the, the sort of buzz of, of noise quietens down. So that lasted for a couple of days. Like, wow, this is great. No thinking. <sighs> At last. Then after about four or five days of um, sitting and walking with no thoughts going on, there was a feeling, this is really boring. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and then a few more days went by and and I was thinking, well, this is really quiet, but this can't be Nibbana. (laughs) This is just so boring. It feels like uh, sitting sitting in a gray box that 
there's no way that the Buddha could have built a world religion around this. <laughs> you know, or if he did, he's the greatest con artist that ever lived. <laughs> there's some, something's out of order here, and not, something's not quite right. And I went through the list of, of uh, the hindrances. Okay, sense desire? Nope. Reversion? No. Restlessness? No. Doubt? No. Dullness? No. Wide awake? Okay, so then none of the hindrances seem to be there. Why is this so bland, so lifeless? You know, just feeling like it was the mind was just like a, a, a gray box with nothing in it. And, uh, and I, th- I, then I, th- I thought, well, maybe I just need some more joy. <laughs> Let's get joyful. <laughs> and uh, that was a mistake. <laughs> so I tried to crank up some, some loving kindness and get a few sort of think pink. <laughs> tried to think pink for a day or two, but that was uh, really nauseating and definitely uh, not what was needed. Something, you know, was, was, clearly it was not just uh, spraying everything with, with uh, cotton candy and uh, pink paint. It was, it was not going to do the trick. And so then I, I was looking at this and feeling it out and, uh, and I began to consider, well, maybe it's not that something's missing. Maybe there's something present that's, that's clogging the works up. What could that be? Because that's right, there's a feeling of clogness. Something's, that's right, it feels like the system is blocked up somehow. Now what, what could be here that's blocking the whole thing up? And then you could almost sort of hear the little wheels turning. <laughs> and as, as uh, I considered like that, suddenly it became clear, oh, I know what's here. Me. I'm here. It's the meditator. There's me, the doer. There's this experience, and it was almost like the, you know, the, the puppet, the puppet master was suddenly, <laughs> well, like in the Wizard of Oz, you know, the the uh, the wizard is revealed behind the screens, and the, the puppet master was suddenly that you could see all the strings, like, oops, oh, sorry, <laughs> you didn't see anything. It tried to sneak back into the into the the area behind the scenery, so it wouldn't be seen. But it's like, oh, that's it! It's there's a me who's doing this, who's experiencing this, who's the owner of all of this. That because the attention was being focused on this sort of very quiet, still, objective world, the the realm of the subject was was being ignored, and that all the time there was this presumption of a of a person who was, who was there, who was doing, who was feeling, who was knowing. So then I, re- I recalled uh, a practice that, uh, that Ajahn Sumedho had been teaching about five years before. Actually, I think it was the very first time he taught the, the, the meditation on the Nada sound as well. Back in the early days of our uh, monastery in Sussex in England, Chithurst, when we had one of our um, first community retreats there, and this was the use of uh, of inquiry, and uh, so the way that you can use this, and, and together with the meditation on the 
on the Nada sound, the sound of silence, to uh, to focus uh, the attention steadily on the, the sound, letting the, the awareness be very very uh, open as much as possible, and then to simply pose the question: Who am I? Who am I? And when when that question is posed in the calmness and clarity of, a, of a, an open and focused mind, then at least what can happen, uh, and what, what I, I found to be the case, was that, that it triggers the intuition that who is a wrong question. There's a presumption about using the word who, that there's a person that that's referring to. And the heart knows, oh, there, is, there isn't a who here. So when, when the question, who am I, is posed, there's no right verbal answer. And this is, in a way, the essence of, of koan practice, is there isn't, there isn't a right answer because the, you know, the, the silence of the, the liberated mind is, is the answer. <laughs> So in that moment of, of, of posing that kind of question, and it can, doesn't have to be just exactly those words, but you can, one can use different phrases like, you know, who is experiencing this? Who does this belong to? Or, what is it that's aware? One can move it around. But the point is to create a, a hesitation to to interrupt the habitual, habitually seamless self-creating process um, whereby the, the me, the doer, the owner, the knower, the actor is being constantly generated. And what's happening when, when that sort of question is asked or that kind of statement is made is it's like the, the camera's being turned back on the photographer. It's like the, the curtain's being parted and you can, you can see the character behind the behind the screens, pulling the strings. And in, a, in that moment, it's, it, it's revealed. It's the, the, the system sort of stumbles. This is, this is how I experience it. And there's a gap that opens up. It's like a, a spaciousness. And I, I remember very clearly that, that evening, I think it was back in January or February of 1981, when, uh, when Lumpur first taught this to the community and was doing this as a guided meditation. And uh, that that quality of of openness and simplicity. It's, it's like a, a mixture of utter normality and uh, great wonderment, uh, tremendous energy, but also peacefulness. That's that's there. It's present uh, when that that gap opens up when that, that spaciousness appears. And uh, the way for most people experience this when you do this kind of practice is that when you pose that question, you inquire in that way. It's a, it's a momentary opening. And then as the way of nature, you know, that which opens, <laughs> closes, and the thinking mind jumps in or the verbal answers start appearing or, gee, wow, that's amazing. At last I got it. <laughs> Now I understand. <laughs> Does this mean I'm a soda pot? 
and off it runs. And so um, this is the gap closing. <laughs> and so uh, the point uh, of the way that one works with this practice is they, then to just go back, to let the, the mental activity settle and bring the attention back to the, the inner sound, uh, let that be um, the clarifying focus and also giving the quality of, of openness of attention and then to drop the question in again or maybe vary the, the wording a little bit because if you just repeat the same thing over and over the mind can easily be habituated but by by genuinely asking that kind of question you have to really mean it for the for the uh, the uh, the trick to work if you like then if you really in, there's a real inquiry. It's not just a repetition of the words, but there's a real interest. You know, who? Who am I? What? What is it that's aware? What knows this? That, uh, again, that, that, uh, that, that gap opens up, that spaciousness appears. And then the, the training is just to, to let the heart rest in that gap, to let that be recognized as being the fundamental nature of mind and that the, that's, that's what we can trust, that's what uh, we are, if you like. And then the, the, recog- the more that it's, it's known, the more clearly that it's recognized, then it can be seen that it has no edges, it has no beginning or end, it's not old or young, it's not tall or short, it has no dimensions, it's not born, it's not dying, it's not tied up to time or locality or individuality. None of these none of these qualities apply. It's not anywhere, it's not any person, it's not in the world of time or space, but it's present. It is. Uh, and it know and it, it knows. And even just saying it, you know, even as I'm <laughs> pronouncing the word, there's something that's saying, well, it's not. <laughs> Using the word it is, uh, is also not quite it. <laughs> because it, it makes that quality into a noun, uh, an, an object, uh, a thing. And, but the, the reality is... is uh, Transcendent of thingness. Uh, it's not just a, uh, a sort of super thing. <laughs> it's a, it's a, of a transcendent quality that we can only really know directly through realization. And uh, the practice and this kind of inquiry, the, the, it's used to help make that quality clearer and clearer and to be established more consistently so that rather than just being known initially as a sort of a gap between the curtains as they part now and then it becomes so well known rather like the developing the contemplation of the nada sound it becomes rather than just a little thing that we hear now and then when everything else quietens down it becomes something that can be known regardless of the mind objects or the perceptual objects that are appearing whether there's um, our retreat at Spirit Rock with a with, uh, you know, hundred people gathered together or whether you're 
in a car on the freeway or, or getting um, roasted in the, the dust of Uttar Pradesh, you know, with uh, <laughs> the 110 degrees and climbing. <laughs> it's still happening in the same space and there's, there's uh, no object of, of sense or, or mind that can intrinsically uh, you know, obstruct or, or pollute that quality. So this is like developing the practice is not, so you're not sort of getting more of that awareness. It's uh, more of the unconditioned. Uh, it's not something that we have, that we have a lot or a little of or can get or can lose. It's simply the development of the practice is developing the uh, direct knowledge, the direct appreciation of that already present quality, that fundamental uh, nature of, of mind. So I've used this kind of practice in, in, in many ways uh, over, over the years. And um, when you're using investigative thought in this way, it's important not for it not to just sort of drift into being a, a kind of think-fest so, hooray, legal thinking, great. Yeah. Ajahn Ramana says you can think while you're meditating, great. Think, 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 think. Yeah, it's kosher now, I can... Um, but when we use reflective thought or investigation of any kind, there's a measured and steady quality to it. So that if you... It's not like you repeat, like, who am I, or, what, or what, whatever words one might be using as a, as a sort of mantra with the words sort of going back to back, but there's a, uh, each time the words are used or the thought is formed, it, it's potent, and then there's a space that's left after that, uh, before that. One's aware of the space around the thought, the space permeating the thought, even as it's, it's formed. Also, uh, it doesn't, one doesn't have to just use questions. I found statements are also quite helpful. Um, so just using a, a statement like, I am, or uh, in a way like coming up with a verbal answer to those kind of questions, like, I know, or this is mine. <laughs> this this uh, feeling belongs to me. I am. And it, at least the way it works, uh, I, I find it works, is that, w- again, with that same kind of uh, deliberate statement within a, a, a spacious and aware context, like if you listen to the, the nada sound and then just bring up that kind of phrase, like, I am. It, even as it's being formed, it's, it, something realizes that it's completely absurd. <laughs> That I am is a sort of is, has got a ridiculous quality to it. It's like this sort of <laughs> you know, idiotic figure standing up in the middle of the of the town square, saying, "Look at me, <laughs> I am." And it's all it is. It's just the ego being revealed <laughs> for what it is. It's not like the uh, anything sort of bad or evil. It's just that the you know, egoic sense being. Uh, fully displayed and, and 
seen for what it is. And that at that moment, there's this intuitive knowledge that that's ridiculous, that the I am is, can only be a limited structure. It's, it has a purpose in nature. It has a, a little psychological function in terms of how we relate to others and how we, we function in the world. But it's not, how could it be any kind of ultimate reality? It's just a, a, mental, a little mental event. It's nothing special. So we begin to, in that way to, to become familiar with the texture of the, of the I feeling, the me feeling, by uh, using reflective thought to help illuminate that. Similarly, uh, our own name is something I often encourage people to do, is just to just meditate on your own name. Similarly, just to use the, the, the focusing on the nada sound. And, and also, I, I keep mentioning that because of the quality of, of listening that's involved. That there's a listening to the sound and then listening to the thought, listening to the, the, the mind. So we begin to relate to that, meant the content of conceptual thought in, with a similar objectivity as we would relate to listening to, to the sound. And when we, we clearly and consciously just bring up our own name, without adding anything to it, what we can experience is how very, very peculiar <laughs> that feels. And we just think, Amaro. What? George. George. (laughs) Linda. What the hell's a Linda? (laughs) David. I am David. I'm kind of exaggerating it for theatrical purposes. But you, you, you get the meaning. That which is so familiar to us, which is, we, we go around saying, well, who are you? Oh, I'm David, I'm Linda, I'm George, I'm Amaro. That's who I am. And it's so matter-of-fact, it's so ordinary, it's so completely unremarkable. Uh, yet when, we, when, when it's looked at and examined, there's that intuition that that what that name is supposed to refer to is of, uh, of a whole different quality, of a, a vast dimensionality far beyond what the syllables can encompass. And what we think of as associated with the name, a particular set of personality traits, possessions, an address, clothing, uh, an identity, social identity... They all cluster around that that name, but then when we we look at it, we hold it up. Something within the heart, that intuitive wisdom of our own nature, recognizes. Oh no, no, it's it's much bigger than that, <laughs> and uh, one can f- feel it like you know that trying to to or looking upon a name as something that encompasses the reality of what is is like writing. You're writing your name on a waterfall with a with a flashlight. <laughs> you know, nothing sticks. <laughs> it's not the, the, there's nothing solid there. And 
there's a direct appreciation and apprehension and apperception of of uh, that which uh, sort of lies behind the name or sort of that which is uh, the reality of uh, the nature of Dhamma. That which is real here and so that it punctures that way in which we continually uh, feed the identification with the body, with the personality, with with personal history, with uh, our our social face and our, our interactions with others, and with that that puncturing, there's a there's a grief maybe that we <laughs> we uh, the devil that we know we we are quite fond of. Uh, there can be a grief in that letting go, but there's also a a, a, a release. There's a joyfulness. There's a relief. Uh, a kind of coming to our senses, a coming home that uh, that we can experience. That's utterly simple, uncomplicated. Uh, it feels it's completely normal, but also there's a wonderment. It's wonderful. There's a, a wonder. Uh, that comes with that as a, like a, a spacious quality, and then the and I use the word wonder because it's suddenly there's a, a lack of definition. We're not defining who and what we are in terms of familiar structures. So what's left is is wonderment or mystery, um, rather than uh, a kind of compact, defined form. And, uh, and if, so if we're identified or we're habituated to being defined as something, then it's threatening to that. So that letting go is, is very threatening to the ego and the, those familiar structures. But it's, it's joyful. It's, it's liberating to the heart. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's freedom. So I will uh, finish my offering of reflections at this point and uh, please take anything that's useful and anything that's not, please leave aside. finish with the uh, sharing of blessings in uh, English which is page 27 Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue 
My mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all the truest leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life, may they soon attain the threefold bliss, and realize the deathless, through the goodness that arises from my practice, and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. <coughs> the teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Tamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha.